Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Verse number 20 gives us an illustration that I want to take and for us to think about through the rest of the sermon. Uh, Verse number 20 says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth. So God is picturing to us this house, and within this house are a great number of vessels great number of containers and he says that there are these containers within this house that are made of different materials you have some vessels some bowls that are made of gold you have some bowls and vessels or maybe cups plates that are made of silver and then you have some other more plain vessels vessels that are made of wood vessels that are made of earth you might think about a clay pot or a clay cup or a container, something like that. And and God is using to us this illustration that there are a great number of diversities of cups. All of them may may be used in the same purpose. A cup is a cup no matter what it's made of, right? A cup is a cup, whether it's made of gold, whether it's made of steel, whether it's made of glass. A cup is a cup. But what God is saying is what the cup is made of matters, right? What the cup is made of matters. When you go to a restaurant, you expect certain things, depending on the kind of restaurant that you might go to. And what the material is made of matters to you when you consume it, when you, when you use it in a lot of ways, whether it's clean, whether it's unclean, what kind of uh, materials it's made of. And what God is saying is, depending on what the cup or vessel is made of, either brings honor or dishonor. That's what he says, and some to honor and some to dishonor. We as Christians, we ought to honor the Lord. With our words, we ought to honor the Lord. With our lives, we ought to honor the Lord. And so it matters what kind of vessel you are. See, we're talking about perilous times. We're talking about troublesome times, persecution coming in the near future, if not even today. Difficulties that come because you will make a stand for the Lord, that you will say, I am a Christian, I have put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I am a child of God, and therefore I must follow God, I must obey God, I must do what he has commanded for me to do. But there might be consequences that come because of that. What God is saying is, despite the perilous times that are here, despite the consequences that may come, we can still see some wonderful progress. We can see success as a church, as individuals. See, it's still possible to have a godly marriage despite what's happening around you. It's still possible for you to raise up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord despite what's happening around you. It's still possible to lead people to the Lord. It's still possible to see a church to grow and to be established. And this morning, I want to see this idea of being an honorable vessel for the Lord, being an honorable vessel in our service to God. So I want to see just a few uh, points that uh, uh, Paul is making to Timothy this morning. First of all, I want to see the place of service. I want us to consider where it is that we serve, because God has given us a place to serve, 
In verse number 20, he says, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver. So God has given to us this house, this place for us to serve, and this service is within the church. Now, when we say that we serve in our church or we serve in the house of the Lord, we're not talking about serving in this auditorium, although a lot of service will happen here. When we say that the house of God, we serve in the house of God, is the house of God just this auditorium? Is it just the building? Is this the house of God? When we leave our, the, the church service this morning, will we say we have left the house of God? Well, the Bible makes it very clear that the house of God, that the church of the living God is not a building, it is a people. Our church is the house of God. So whether we meet here, whether we meet in a different location, maybe one day we'll meet, you know, in a park and we'll have a service there. That is the church. The, the church is those that have been saved and baptized and added into a local assembly. So when we're talking about this place of service and serving in the house of God, we're talking about serving within the church, serving the church. There's a word that's used here in verse number 20 to describe this house that's used to describe his church, this church. And he uses the word great. Verse number 20 says, but in a great house. We as Christians have a privilege to serve God because we get to serve in a great house. The house of God that you get to serve in is a great house. The body of believers that are here gathered together today, it's a great house. But what makes this house so great? What's so special about this house? What's so special about this church? Well, what makes God's house, God's church so great, it is a great house because of its owner. I want you to think about who owns this house. And we th when you think about certain houses that have existed in, in, in the past or even today, sometimes they are lifted up because of who lives there. You think about some of the houses that are up in, you know, Beverly Hills or, you know, certain areas I've mentioned that I grew up in the Seattle area. And I, 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 you know, we would drive across the lake, Lake Washington there. We lived on one side of the lake and my college was on the other side. And so every day I would cross that lake, going to college back and forth and back and forth. And, and on the edge of that lake, as you're driving across the bridge, you can look over and on that side where Medina is or Medina, you can see that there's a house, a special house. And it's a special house because Bill Gates lives there. I remember going over there, driving, I could see Bill Gates. Oh, Bill Gates lives over there. You know, there's a bunch of houses all over there. All of those are really nice houses. They're on the waterfront, you know, the spectacular places to live, I'm sure. But there is one that was more special than the others because the richest man alive, at least at the time, was living in that house over there. And it would draw some attention. We would think about that. And we would say, That's, wow, what a house. Well, there's nothing really special about the house. I mean, it's a fancy house. It's a nice house. But what was special about that one was the one who owned that house. The richest man alive owned that house. And I want you to know that this house that we get to serve in is great because it is owned not by a man. It is owned by God. And that's what makes our house great. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? and ye are not your own. And we get to serve in this great house because it is owned by God. It's a great house also because of its resident. 
Who lives in that house? 1 Corinthians 6, 19, once again, what know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? This house is great, not just because of who owns it, but because of who lives within it. There's something special about the church of God because that's where God lives. God lives in that house. I remember seeing when I was growing up, you know, you go through history class and you get to see all of these different things. I remember seeing a picture of the house that Abraham Lincoln grew up in. And Abraham Lincoln, if you know the story, grew up very poor. He grew up in this one-room log cabin. And uh, you see a picture of this log cabin, and it's, it's a log cabin. It's as log cabin-y as a log cabin gets. I mean, it's so plain, so simple. One room, one room, and off to the side, there's kind of a part that comes out, I'm sure, for, you know, the, the oven stove, you know, heating, a place you put the fire and all of that. And, uh, you know, so you, you have that. That house, it's a log house. Nobody will want to buy it. Nobody will want to live in it. Nobody will want to, you know, move over there. But there is something very special about that house because somebody very special once lived in that house. This president that was Abraham Lincoln lived in that house. So there's something special about that house. Well, the house that we get to serve in, there's a resident in there. There's a very special resident that lives in this house, and his name is God. His name is the creator of the universe. His name is the savior of all mankind. This man that, that, that lived in that log cabin, he was very special. He was the president and became the president of the United States. But this house that we get to serve in is great because God lives in this house. We get to serve in this house that God lives in. It's also a great house because of its architect, because of who designed it. You know, I love going to uh, museums, and I love going to some of these places, and, and my favorite part, there's a lot of great art in a lot of these places, my favorite part is always the architecture. I love going into these uh, places of art, and just seeing how they've designed this whole place, and, and I remember going to, in, in, in Paris, they have this very famous museum, the Louvre, and uh, there's a few very special things that are there. The Mona Lisa was there, and there's a few other statues, and the way that they just designed that whole room around certain things. They have this uh, a statue uh, of, uh, of uh, well, the, the, the modern name is, is Nike. It's the goddess of success. And they have this whole stairwell that goes up through this, you know, kind of a very regal looking staircase, and it goes up, and at the very top of it is this statue. And uh, you just go up the this, this, this staircase and it just looks magnificent just being able to look at it and see what's up there and just walking around. It's just designed amazingly. It's great. And I love going through there and I love going through some of the museums, just seeing how they designed all of that. And you might see certain places that are designed by certain famous architects. Well, this building was not designed by men. It was designed by God. God said in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church. It's a great house that we get to serve in. We also see that it's a great house because of its cost. If you know anything about what's going on these days, housing prices have been going up. You notice that? Housing prices are going up just a little bit, right? Well, even before the housing prices were going up, Sometimes I would see, you know, 
certain pieces of news, you know, I'll go to certain websites. Sometimes I'll go to Google News and they give you all the news, right? You have the, you know, the local news, you have the US news, you have the world news, you have different news, you have sports news, you have, you know, business news. And there'd be an entertainment section. And usually I'm just like, you know, just kind of scrolling. I don't know these people. I don't, you know, don't really care what's going on over there. But every once in a while, I would just see like this picture of a magnificent house. And I was like, whoa, what is this? And some famous celebrity is selling their house for like $35 million. They're selling their house for $50 million. And they would talk about all of that stuff. And I would look at that house and be like, whoa, 30 million. You know, they would talk about, you know, this has got 10 bathrooms. It's got a 20 car garage. It's got all of these things. And then you look at that price tag, $35 million. Oh, what a house, $35 million for a house. Did you know the house that we get to serve in has a cost? The cost was not in dollars. And it's not in gold pieces. It's not in silver coins. Hey, this house that we get to serve in is a great house because of its cost. You know what it cost? It cost the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It cost the blood of the only begotten Son of God. He came down to earth and he paid the price. He shed his blood in order to purchase this house that we might be able to serve in it. It's a great house. Consider the cost of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 24. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It's a great house that we get to serve in. That's why we've got to consider the kind of vessel that we are, bringing honor to the Lord because it's a great house. But there's one more reason why this house that we get to serve in is great. It's great because of its owner. It's great because of who lives there. It's great because of who designed it and who's building it. It's great because of how much it costs. But it is also a great house because of its purpose. See, most houses just have the purpose of, well, just somebody's got to live there, right? People have to live somewhere. So we're going to build these houses. And you live in a house, you live in an apartment, you live in a townhouse, you live in a condo, you live in all these different places. It's built to house a, a person or a family or a group of people, friends or whatever. But the house that we get to serve in has a great purpose. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself, in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. You know the purpose of our church? The purpose of our church is to stand for truth. The purpose of our church is to proclaim the truth. You know what's true? What's true is it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. It's true that, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's true that the Bible says, and it's true for you and for me and every single individual on this earth alive, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is true that we as children of God ought to obey God, follow God, serve God. This house that we get to serve in has a very special purpose. And we get to serve in that house. God has chosen us, you and me, to serve in this great house. So we see the place of service. It's a great house. It's the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. 
But I also want to see the purging for service. In verse number 21, it says, And if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor. See, as Christians, we ought to desire to be vessels of honor and not vessels of dishonor. We ought to be considering the great house that we serve in and considering how we can bring honor to the Lord. Well, how can we be this vessel of honor? How can we be this tool that God can use in his hands in order to bring himself honor? He says in verse 21, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. See, we've got to be sanctified, we've got to be meet for the master's use, and we've got to be prepared unto every good work. The word sanctified means to be set apart. It's set apart. You and I, as vessels of the Lord, are to be set apart. Not just used for every part of whatever the world wants to use you for. We are, or we ought to be sanctified. Set apart from the world's use and set apart for God's use. And that requires a purging. We need to be, what the Bible says, meat for the master's use. The word meat means sufficient. That we need to be sufficient for the master's use. We'll get to that in just a moment. And prepared unto every good work. If we're going to be vessels unto honor, we've got to be prepared for every good work that the master wants to use us for. You have all these vessels in your house. You ever use vessels for things that they're not supposed to be, quote-unquote, supposed to be used for? You know, if you just need a container, you just grab whatever container's there. It's maybe not supposed to be used for that, but I just need something. Just need to carry water or something. You and I, we don't decide where we are used. That's the master's job, Right? The vessels that are in your house don't decide how they are used. You decide how they are used, right? Because you are the owner of the house. You are the owner of those vessels. You are the ones that purchase those things with a price. You and I, we don't decide where we are used. So we've just got to be ready for it. I remember hearing the story about uh, this uh, football player last year, I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, I think it was last year, uh, he was a rookie, just came into the league, got drafted by some team and joined in with the team. And a very first game, very first game comes up and uh, somebody else is supposed to play. Somebody else is quarterback, starting quarterback. And uh, this other guy, he's a rookie, he's, he's just going to sit on the sideline. Very first play of the game, the rookie is the one that runs out onto the field and everybody's surprised. The announcers are like, what, what, what is going on? This rookie's starting and all, oh, he's coming out. It should be the other guy. And even one of his own teammates in the huddle was looking at him. He's like, what are you doing here? And he was like, just let me call the plays, okay? And, you know, they started playing the game and started getting into it. Well, what had happened was the starting quarterback was getting some treatment. He was getting injected with something. And I don't even understand how this happens. But the trainer made a mistake and went too far and he punctured his lung in the lead up to the game they're they're all on the sideline you know everybody's ready to go right before the game trainer injects him with something and uh and he's not able to go and everyone's wondering what's going on and every, you know and and this guy didn't decide you know what i'm gonna start this game he was just there 
And coach said, all right, you're up. He let him know 30, or 30 seconds before the game started, hey, you got to start this game. You know, sometimes we don't decide what happens around us. We just go in whenever God calls us. Amen? However God calls us. See, I, I've given my testimony before. Going into full-time ministry was not my idea, okay? <laughs> that was not how I was planning my life out. I had some other plans, some other things, and not necessarily, you know, quote-unquote bad things. I was planning on getting a, a job and working, serving in my church and giving, giving to missions and, and all of these other things. I had all of these plans for my life, but God said, all right, you, Richard, you're a vessel in this great house. Are you going to let me decide how I'm going to use you? It was a part of God's calling into full-time ministry. We've got to be prepared for that. We've got to be prepared for that. How can we be prepared for that? Well, verse number 21 makes it clear. If a man therefore purge himself from these. Verse 22 says, flee also youthful lusts. Verse 23, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid. If we are going to be ready for the master's use, we've got to be pure. You ever go to a restaurant and get the utensils? Or you ever get a cup and the cup is not clean? You ever been there? You ever go home and you're about to get ready for a meal and you pull out all the plates and you, pull, you, know, you put the plates on the table and you realize one of them is not clean? You know what that means? That plate is not ready. It's not been prepare. See, that's the thing about your vessels and your utensils, all of the things in your house is sometimes they sit there for a little while, and then sometimes God says, I need you right now. Sometimes as a Christian, it feels like we're just going about our lives, and then every once in a while, God says, I need you. We've got to be ready for that moment when God says, I need you. I need you to witness to this person right here. I need you to witness to your coworker. I need you to serve in this ministry. I need you to help out your family in this area. I need you to participate in this class. I need you to teach this truth to this unbeliever or teach this truth to a believer who's not yet fully mature and understands all of these. How can we be ready for the master's use? We've got to be pure. We've got to be clean. We've got to constantly go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness for our sins on a daily basis. Well, how do we do that in terms of, well, we've got to be pure. I want to give you just a very practical thing that I think will help you. Of course, every one of us will always face temptations, and the Bible makes it very clear that he will always give a way of escape. But he says in verse number 22, flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, and peace. One of the best things that you can do to avoid sinning is to follow after the things that you ought to follow after, meaning occupy yourself with good things so you will be tempted less to do things that are sinful, right? One of the best things that you could do for your kids to keep them out of trouble is to keep them busy. Amen? You ever have kids that have nothing to do? What happens? It doesn't matter what happens. It's always something you don't want them to do, right? So if you want them to not do those things, and there's a million different things that they could do that you don't want them to do, and there's no way you're going to have a full list of, all right, 
you know, don't pull out this, don't draw on the walls, don't do all of this, because they will come up with something that you would never even imagine that somebody would think of doing this thing, right? So you know how you keep them from doing all of those things that you don't want them to do? One of the things that will help, it's no guarantee, of course, is keep them busy with doing something good. You know what's good for Christians? Being busy doing something good. Being occupied serving God on a regular basis. See, sometimes Christians, they come to church on a Sunday morning service, and they come to church on a Sunday morning service. You're here on a Sunday morning service? That's great. That's wonderful. And you're occupying yourself here, right? It's really hard to curse when you're here at church, amen? Right? If you have a problem with cursing, it's really tough to do it here. If you've got a problem smoking or drinking, that's really hard to do it when you're here, right? Really hard. Can you imagine somebody trying to do that here? We'd be like, hey, brother, <laughs> what you doing? <laughs> but I want to ask you beyond just the hour and a half or three hours that you're here, I want to ask you about the rest of your days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Tomorrow is Labor Day. Labor Day is the day where we celebrate labor. I don't know what we're doing on Labor Day, but whatever it is, we're not laboring, right? We're not supposed to labor on Labor Day. It's the opposite of what we're actually doing. What are you going to do on Labor Day? What are you going to do on Labor Day? Whether it's you're, you're just being with family and friends, all of that is great and wonderful, but occupy yourself. Don't just sit around your house for 16 hours all day, just at home, on your cell phone. You know what you're going to get yourself into? You're going to get yourself into trouble. You know why? Because there's only so many good things that you're going to scroll across on the internet before you scroll through something bad. And then you're going to get tempted. I wonder what that is. You're going to get tempted to dig a little deeper, read a little more, see a little more. You're going to get tempted to do some things that you probably shouldn't do. You know, one thing that's great for Christians, occupy yourself. Occupy yourself. You know, one of the things that we do is we have more than one service in a week. Did you know that? If, you, if you're a member here, you know that. Many of you come here. You know, one of the reasons why we have more than just one service, people wonder, why do, you, why do you have more than one service a week? You just, I could just go to church. Well, one of the things that we can do as believers is occupy ourselves with something good. You know what we do on a Sunday night service that's good? We sing. You know what we do on a Sunday night service that's good? We hear the word of God. You know what we do on a Sunday night service that's good? We're around other Christians. Those are good things. And the Bible says here in verse number 22, follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them. With them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You know what will help you to flee youthful lusts? When you follow righteousness with those that are righteous. Having good Christian friends in your church is important. It's important. So that we can be sanctified vessels, meet for the master's use. So, we know that we serve in a great house. We know that God wants us to be ready and prepared, so we've got to be pure. One of the things that will help you to keep accountable is to have other people that also want to serve God, and you become friends together. 
Thirdly, what we see then is the plan for service. We've been talking about service generally speaking, but Paul is really getting right to the point in verse number 24. And the servant of the Lord must not strive. We talked about that we're not supposed to strive. We're not supposed to argue and fight. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, per, uh, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. What does it mean for us as Christians to serve in this great house? One of the most important aspects is to teach. To teach. The beginning of chapter number two, here is Paul giving instruction to Timothy. The things that I give unto you, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to give them to others who may be able to teach others also. One of the most important aspects of Bible Baptist Church is teaching. Teaching the Word of God. And when I say teaching, I mean more than just there's a teacher up here and the rest of us, we are students hearing from the teacher. The Bible makes it clear that we ought to teach one another. We ought to teach one another. That's one of the most important aspects of what we call fellowship. Coming together is to teach one another. We saw the word apt to teach, instructing those that oppose themselves. Matthew chapter 28, we see the Great Commission. The first word in verse number 19 is what? It is teaching them. Or go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. A big part of the church is teaching. And not just you have a bunch of students and one teacher up here teaching, but this aspect of we teach one another. You know what that means for us as believers? Is that we've got to have something to teach. Amen? You've got to have something that you've learned from God that you are able to share with somebody else and say, you know what, God taught me this through this experience or when I was reading God's word, God really impressed on my heart this area that, you know what, I need to change and then be able to teach somebody else as well. Teaching is tough though. Teaching's hard. Teaching is difficult. Teaching a child is, is not easy. The Bible makes it very clear that we've got to have some certain traits to be able to teach well. Verse number 24 says, the servant of the Lord must not strive. Teaching and arguing are not the same thing. Amen? Amen. Some people love arguing. They love it. But you know what's interesting? When you see Jesus, do you ever picture Jesus arguing with somebody? Even the Pharisees? When you see the scriptures, you don't see them arguing and fighting and yelling and screaming. and You don't see that. You don't see Paul doing it. You don't see Peter and John doing it. Now, there were times of fierce debate. Somebody's got one really strong opinion. Another person's got a really strong opinion. You have those kinds of things. But striving is a different thing. Because, you know, let, let's go into politics, right? Politics is you know, at least these days, maybe it's always been famous for, you know, one person yelling their opinion, the other person yelling back over the opinion, and all of this, you know, all of those things. How many times have you seen in a situation like that where one person says, you know what, you're right.
right. I, after you yelled that at me, it really struck me that I was wrong and you were right. You, you never see that, right? You know what's more likely to happen in a situation like that? What's more likely in a situation like that is the person who lost is not convinced of the other side. You know what they think about? They're trying to think of a counter tactic to beat you in the debate, right? They're going to come up with a different idea. So the object for us is not to be the loudest or to fight the hardest necessarily. We, have a, we, we need to stand for what God has given to us in the truth of God's word. But we've got to have certain character traits. In verse number 24, he gives us these traits. We need to be gentle unto all men. At the end of the verse, he says that we need to be patient. And in verse number 25, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. We've got to be gentle. That word gentle is used in 1 Thessalonians to describe how a nurse or a mother takes care of a child. When we are teaching, we ought to come with the idea that we are parents taking care of children. Because when you get saved, you are a newborn child of God. Amen? You're a baby. <laughs> You're an infant. We were all that way when we got saved. And you know what infants need? They need gentleness, right? They don't need armor. They're not going into battle, <laughs> right? They need gentleness. They need somebody to help them, take care of them, pick them up from where they are and help carry them to where they need to be. They need gentleness. And they also need patience. You ever try to teach a child how to eat? You ever try to teach them how to eat solid food? Right? Brother Robbie just had a child. You're, you're going through this for the second time soon. Right? It gets messy. Real messy. And it gets messy on those really fancy clothes that you bought for your kid and the shoes and, you know, you got the fancy tablecloths and you got all of that stuff that you want to keep clean and and, and, and the child will take the spoon and, and instead of like holding it level, they'll, they'll just kind of turn it this way towards them and everything falls out, all of that stuff. As parents, we know one day they will get there. But in the meantime, in the whatever five years it takes for them, we got to be patient. It requires patience. You, know, you might see a Christian here who's been here for years and years and years. And you think, when are you gonna grow up? We as Christians that we would say, at least we would wanna think of ourselves as being more mature, you know what, if we're gonna be the more mature Christian, we've got to be patient. Patient with this child of God. Patient with them, teaching them, helping them. And we, we've also got to be meek. This word meek means mild and gentle friendliness. See, the attitude of a teacher is not that they are going to war with the enemy. See, we're talking about here in the church. You've got to approach the person that you're teaching as a friend. We're friends together, amen? We are friendly with each other, amen? <laughs> We've got to approach one another as friends. See, the enemy is not a brother or sister in Christ. They're not the enemy. They might require patience, they might require gentleness, but they are still friends. We've got to teach them as friends. And if we take all of these things, then I believe that we will see fruit. 
The Bible says in verse number 25, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. See, there's no guarantees. You might invest your life into an individual for all of the days of their existence here on earth and never see them grow at all. There's no guarantee of that. There's no guarantee that somebody will grow or not grow. Every one of us is accountable for ourselves. But the Bible here says that there is hope for every individual. And that hope lies not in myself and not in my teaching ability, but in the Lord. See, here is Paul, he's saying, we're, we're vessels in this great house, we have this great privilege, we need to be pure, we need to be ready, God can use us at any moment, but at the end of the day, if results are going to come, it will come from God and God alone. Verse 25, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them. See, it is God who does the work. Ultimately, in church, even though we do a lot of physical things, like we serve in a church in terms of somebody might be vacuuming the carpet, somebody might be, you know, uh, taking out the trash, somebody might be preparing some snacks or food, somebody else might be playing the piano. There's some very practical things, but at the base, ultimately at the core, everything that we do is spiritual work. Everything is spiritual work. And the only one that accomplishes spiritual fruit is the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen? All right. Without me, Jesus made it very clear, ye can do nothing. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And you have that list of fruits there in Galatians chapter 5. So ultimately, at the end of the day, if people will be taught, it will, they will be taught out of God's Word with the Holy Spirit speaking to their heart. See, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, if you want to be effective helping somebody, teaching something to somebody so that they would grow, what you need to give them is you need to give them the Bible. You need to give them God's word. You need to give them some principle that's based upon the word of God. You need to give them some verses that will help them and teach them and instruct them. And if we do, amazing things can happen. I want you to consider one of the, the first uh, um, deacons there in, in the church at Jerusalem. Acts chapter number six, we won't go through the story. They had a bunch of deacons, seven deacons that were elected. One of those deacons was Stephen. Stephen began to teach the Bible, began to preach the Word of God. And you saw that in chapter number 7. He was preaching the Word of God. At the end of it, he became a martyr. They were so convicted that the Bible says that they gnashed upon him with their teeth. And when, 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 uh, when he uh, responded with a few more words, they cried aloud, cast him out of the city, and they stoned him to death. He died. That's at the end of chapter number seven. Chapter number eight says Saul was consenting unto his death and he begins his pursuit of Christians to persecute them. That's chapter number eight. 
You see one of the other deacons, they leave, he leaves out into the desert, he meets the Ethiopian eunuch, that's chapter number eight, and then he is taken away after he leads him to the Lord and baptizes him. He's taken away, he's found on the coast, he goes up the coast, the Mediterranean coast, until he gets to Caesarea, and he begins to really kind of plant himself in a ministry there. Chapter number nine, continues the persecution of Saul. Saul is continuing his persecution. He's basically exhausted all of the persecution there in Judea and Jerusalem, so now he's going beyond and he's going to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, he meets the Lord. He meets the Lord, and Paul says, who art thou? Who are you? And Jesus said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecuteth. And remember what he said to Paul, what is Saul at the time? He said, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The number one enemy in Jerusalem of the church was Saul. And that Saul was consenting to the death of the first martyr and the first uh, deacon there at the church. But because that man preached the, God, uh, the word of God in perilous times, an enemy of God heard the word of God and later trusted Jesus Christ to be a savior. You know how all of that happened? You saw that here was a man, Stephen or Stephen. He was a deacon. He was prepared, meet for the master's use, sanctified, set apart, ready for whatever God had for him. And God says, here's a time where we need some service here in the church. We need some deacons. And he was elected and he began to preach the word of God. And he served there in the, in the church of God. And, and he preached out to those that were lost. And even though he lost his life, he was martyred. A great fruit happened. And the rest of the New Testament, you see the life of Paul. Basically from chapter, I think, 11 or 12. The rest of the book of Acts is really about the life of Paul. Here we're reading a letter written by Paul. Some great, wonderful things happened because there was one individual who decided, I'm going to be ready for the master's use. I'm going to serve in this great house, and God is the one that brought some fruit. 